HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Origins, a speaker series about food, its source, and how we eat. Available on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Eating Matters is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. With the 2016 Summer Olympics underway in Rio, we thought it was a perfect time to explore the food system of the host country. Today, we'll be talking to Bridget Huber, a journalist from the Food and Environment Reporting Network, about changes to Brazil's food system in the past 20 years, the repercussion of those changes, and what they're doing about it. Later on the show, we'll be joined by David Foster, co-founder of the recently launched Every Table, an L.A.-based restaurant chain on a mission to make good food available to everyone. But before we get into our discussion on Brazil's food system, Taylor Lanzette, my associate producer, is in the studio with me today, um, and we're going to start by running through some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. What, what do you have for us? Uh, so we're going to start with McDonald's. Let's do it. <laughs> At the beginning of the month, uh, McDonald's announced some major changes to their company-wide menu. And mm-hmm. for starters, uh, they're removing, they are removing artificial preservatives from several items, including their iconic Chicken McNuggets. Mm-hmm. They are also rolling out new buns that no longer contain high-fructose corn syrup. They completed their major commitment to only serve chicken not treated with human antibiotics. Um, they're, using, they're using freshly cracked grade-A eggs and real butter for egg sandwiches. They also have a commitment to 100%, 100% cage-free eggs by 2025, and they're sourcing milk for, for yogurt from cows not treated with RBST. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. It's crazy. The, the real game changer to me seems like um, it would be the commitment to only sourcing chickens that um, haven't been treated with antibiotics. This, this is huge. Totally huge. 
Yeah. When, but when are they going to make these changes by, did you say? Well, so specifically for the antibiotic-free chicken, they actually already completed that, and their target date was supposed to be next March of 2017. Wow. So they are ahead of of their timeline, which no one has ever said. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... is like I'm having a really hard time wrapping my head around it. Like I think it's I think it's completely amazing. Um, yeah. I also one of the interesting things here beyond their commitment to sourcing kind of healthier, more sustainable products, is seems to be like their commitment to quality ingredients, like a hundred percent beef, freshly cracked eggs, real buttermilk, and you know it seems like they're finally catching on to the idea that. Um, fresher, higher quality ingredients taste better. Totally. And will make their customers happier. Yeah. Uh, It's going to be really interesting, though, to see how this will affect their prices at all and, you know, how they're going to offset it. Yeah. um, Like, you know, specifically with sugar, etc. Right, right. So we're going to have to see how it it rolls out. But without a doubt... um, Kudos to McDonald's. I really want to congratulate the company on putting their intentions out there. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, then we'll, then we'll see if they they meet they can meet them. I, so congratulations! Congratulations! <laughs> Also, yeah. Okay. Well, you you know what? You got to give praise where credit where credit's due, right? I really believe that. Strong day for McDonald's. (laughs) Uh, Not a strong day for dairy prices. Right. What's going on there? So dairy prices are at a a 10-year low. Um, And, you know, producer... I think we we should say that with a little bit more, like, sadness in your voice. I was just really getting over the McDonald's. Right, right, yeah. A a 10-year low. (laughs) We'll, we'll work on that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but so producers in Vermont and New York can barely make enough to cover their costs. And so when, when you're milking, you know, herds of 200 cows, um, it, it's crazy when you, if you can't cover your costs, it's, you know, being treated such like a commodity that right. farmers are going to have to go out of business. Right. And and this really is a big problem right now. And, and dairy is something that we're obviously pretty obsessed with on the show. Um, <laughs> in so, all forms. In all forms. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, if you're ever, if you're kind of listening to this and wondering, like, how do we get to this point um, to have such a glut of, of dairy products and milk on the market, um, I'm going to point you in the direction of our previous episode with Melanie Dupuis, the mm-hmm. author of Nature's um, Perfect Food, uh, who can shed some light on that. Yeah, and it truly cannot be a better time to support your local milk farmer. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and for those of you who are thinking, like, I, how am I supposed to know who my local milk farmer is? <laughs> I live in You don't have them on speed dial? Yeah, I do, we don't. <laughs> I don't, at least. But um, I would say... Don't even think twice about it. Go to your local green market or check out a service like Our Harvest, which is a farmer's market online um, that will tell you where your local uh, dairy farmer is. Yeah, awesome. Um, So another another thing that was really interesting was, so last week, the Washington Post ran a great article about how mainstream animal welfare has become, Mm -hmm. specifically how chicken welfare has become sort of like the mainstream mainstream concern of uh, animal activists. And so Karen Brulliard writes how over 200 U.S. companies, including every major grocery store and fast food chain, um, that collectively have the purchasing power of about 7 billion eggs a month, have committed to cage-free by 2025. That's like an insane amount. I mean, it really is. It's a lot of eggs. It's a lot of eggs. <laughs> <laughs> like tr- 7 billion. <laughs> Can't wrap my head around that number, but it's um, a lot. 
Yeah, and we totally recommend checking it out. Um, you know, the article references how industry and farmers complain about, obviously, how expensive these new systems might be. Um, but a lot of people are saying, as always, hey, look at Europe. They have already right. done it. They've already figured it out. Yeah, and it seems to be working quite well. I mean, and I think, you know, our earlier news announcement about McDonald's, right, committing to sourcing cage-free eggs yeah. by 2025 and um, and using freshly cracked eggs is maybe, well, not the freshly cracked eggs, but the, the commitment to sourcing cage-free eggs is indicative of um, some of the progress that these animal welfare uh, activists have made. Totally. Uh, and last up, uh, we haven't really spent much time talking about uh, the election cycle over mm-hmm. the air. But an article ran in the New York Times that was too good to ignore. The article by Ashley Parker talks about Donald Trump's eating habits, specifically his love for fast food. McDonald's, KFC, Taco Bell, all his favorites. We cover the only the hardest hitting, <laughs> you know, topics on Eating Matters. The important stuff. <laughs> um, and, you know, I will say neither Jenna, you know, I'm definitely not. And I don't think you are either. We are not interested in shaming anyone for their eating habits no but i might make an exception for trump <laughs> I, I will yeah i will. Yeah, I, I just can't help think how big of a change this is from the obama white house right so we have let's move campaign to curb childhood obesity we have the white house right. garden you just sort of you saw you know fruits and vegetables in a way that you haven't really in other administrations yeah yeah and i, I mean i think that you and i at least not to get too political but let me get political, Um, think that a Trump presidency would be terrifying on many fronts. And of course, from a food policy perspective, this would be no exception. Um, One recent example, uh, Trump has um, so far, he's tapped Texas Ag Commissioner Sid Miller um, to help him lead his Agriculture Advisory Committee, um, which is still in the process of coming together. But Politico uh, did a interesting, did some research on him. And um, this Miller is the the same guy who tried to bring back deep fryers and full calorie <laughs> sodas to public schools and has also done things like publicly criticize the Meatless Monday um, efforts uh, in campaign that... Um, you know, has been has been championed. Wow, what so, a great pick! Yeah, what a great guy. You know, <laughs> let's let's just also uh, covering the heart, the hard hitting <laughs> issues. Yeah, I know, but I can't. I, I really yeah. like it, it's like beyond the pale. It's just everything yeah. that it flies in the face of um, the progress that has been made um, by so many in the past few years. So, Absolutely. So, um, you know, by the way. Miller, just in case you're wondering, thinks that Trump will be a great ag pick um, because he's going to do things like appoint conservative judges to combat regulations that mm. adversely affect agriculture, of course. like the Endangered Species Act. <laughs> it's, They're yeah. also probably going to get rid of the USDA and the EPA. Yeah, who needs those? <laughs> who needs some? Yeah, the, also, that we, you know, Clinton has stayed relatively quiet on the food front as well, um, yeah. and yeah. Obama's legacy in terms of food will be a tough one to follow. Um, but at but, least, you know, in many ways, we could probably expect similar things from her. Right. I'm with her. <laughs> I'm with her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. With that, um, we're going to wrap up our news segment. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, be sure to tweet at us. Um, our Twitter handle is at EatMattersHRN. <laughs>
music for this break is brought to you by Teeth People, and this one's called Greenwood Cemetery. Now, we're going to turn to our feature story for today about the Brazilian food system. Joining me on the line to dig into this issue is Bridget Huber, a reporter for the Food and Environment Reporting Network, um, which is an independent nonprofit news organization producing investigative journalism about food, agriculture, and environmental issues. Bridget's recent piece, Slow Food Nation, uh, was produced in collaboration with The Nation and discusses the advancements that Brazil has made in its fight against the obesity epidemic. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so glad that you can be on. Um, let's, let's start from the beginning. How did you decide to write this story on the food system, on, on Brazil's food system in particular? Well, um, in general, I had been interested in a few years in for a few years in some of the food policy things that were coming out of Latin America. Um, you know, you would see in different countries some of these policies like soda taxes or labeling laws that were um, things that advocates talked about here in the U.S. but had never managed to put into place. Um, and then Brazil particularly, you know, I thought was really interesting when they released their new dietary guidelines in 2014. Um, they were sort of this big statement of principles that laid out how the country was going to be looking at food and nutrition. And, and it was pretty unique and refreshing advice, um, you know, really took a, an approach that went beyond sort of your typical dietary advice and looked at the social and economic and environmental consequences of what you eat. And, and it also talked about pleasure, um, the pleasure of eating, of sharing meals. So I think that resonated with a lot of people and it got a lot of, you know, there was a lot of conversation about it in sort of food policy circles here. Um, yeah, and then I thought Montero was Carlos Montero. The um, I, one of my main characters is Carlos Montero, who's a professor of nutrition at the University of Sao Paulo, and he's just a really interesting character because you know when he started his work, stunting and malnutrition was a big problem, you know, and his work has completely changed, and now they're much more worried about you know obesity, chronic diseases, sort of dietary deterioration. So to be able to talk to someone who sort of watched that transition happen, I thought was very interesting. Right. Um, and we're definitely going to um, dig into the Brazil's dietary guidelines um, a little bit later. But I just can you um, just to sort of set the stage, give us uh, a brief overview of the maybe similarities and differences between Brazil and the U.S. in terms of like size, landscape, um, you know, population, so we can kind of uh, wrap our heads around the the, the two countries comparison? Sure, yeah. So um, Brazil is just a little bit smaller than the continental U.S. So both are, you know, humongous countries. Um, Brazil has a population of around 200 million. The U.S. is um, a bit more than 300 million people. Um, and both countries are extremely diverse um, in terms of race, um, culture, geography. Uh, so, you know, we have a lot of similarities there. Um, both countries also have, you know, some pretty serious um, issues with economic inequality. Mm -hmm. um, and we're both big commodity producers, right? Um, both, you know, produce lots of things like corn and soy and beef, but also have you know, a, a relatively influential social movement, I would say, that has sort of come together around food and nutrition issues. 
Okay. So they, um, I want to get a, a sense of, you mentioned that they do produce a lot of commodity crops. Um, is that is it on a similar scale to the U.S.? For instance, we learned last week um, or in our last episode that the U.S. only utilizes about 10 million acres um, out of its total 400 million acres. It's possible for things like fruits and vegetables, um, the production of fruits and vegetables. Is that a similar situation uh, in Brazil? Like, does commodity industrial farming dominate? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how it breaks down, like in those exact terms. Oh, yeah, I can yeah. say that Brazil is, um, you know, one of the largest, um, if not the largest, exporters of soy and beef, um, also the largest consumer of um, agricultural chemicals. Wow. Um, so certainly there's a lot of sort of industrial scale farming going on there. But then, right. you know, one of, and I would love to see this calculation done in the U.S., but um, one of the interesting things that I learned when I was reporting the story is that about 70% of the food that people eat, um, you know, so that would be things that aren't destined to sort of the export economy, which I think a lot of that soy and beef is, mm-hmm. um, but about 70% of the food that Brazilians eat does come from family farmers. Um, wow. 70, yeah, 70%. And so, so part that's... of that is just, um, you know, part of the, one of the big differences there is that in the U.S. there's been what some people call a hollowing out of the agriculture sector. So there's been, you know, big farms have gotten bigger and bigger and consolidated. And then you have also on the other end of the spectrum these, you know, much smaller farms that maybe sell at farmer's markets or have a CSA. But in terms of what's in the middle, you know, those farms have really struggled to survive because they kind of don't fit in either place. Um, and a lot of people argue that the U.S. government hasn't really done enough to try to mm-hmm. help them survive, you know, mm-hmm. um, help them reach markets, uh, that kind of thing. So one of the differences in Brazil is that, you know, starting in about the mid-90s, Brazil started to specifically work to kind of support these family farmers. And then that work really kind of got traction during Lula's administration. Um, so really trying to, to help those people in the ways that they needed. So maybe getting access to markets, um, maybe, you know, getting um, legal access to land. That's been a huge problem in Brazil. So sort of targeted policies at this this particular sector. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting because I totally agree that mid-scale farming is just not as sexy uh, in the U.S. and it's not perceived <laughs> to be. Um, you, you write about the rise of transnational corporations in Latin America um, and how they've triggered a major public health changes in Brazil. Um, can you talk about these changes and the effects that they've had on Brazilian consumers? Sure, yeah. Um, so, you know, if you, there was sort of a confluence of events. I mean, one of the things was that, um, you know, markets in Brazil and a lot of other countries became um, much more open, and so um, transnational companies were able to sort of come in and do much more business than they've been able to. Um, and then there also was this expanding consumer class um, as, you know, the countries became more um, prosperous, and then also there have been a lot of targeted anti-poverty efforts, which has meant that, you know, things like, um, for example, raising the minimum wage or, you know, these uh, large-scale welfare programs that kind of make sure that people have almost a basic income. So that meant that there were a lot more people that, you know, could buy these products. Um, so, so that also drove it. And then and then there's been also just the fact that, you know, in wealthier countries, 
um, the penetration of ultra-processed products is much higher, but it also seems to be kind of leveling out or even declining when you look, say, at soda. So wealthier countries are drinking less than mm-hmm. they used to, and, you know, and lower and middle-income countries, the consumption is still going up. So that becomes an important market for these companies. Um, okay, but then, but, but uh, despite um, Brazil's investment in industrial agriculture and the kind of rise of the transnational corporation um, in Latin America, uh, you also say that they've made huge progress in fighting, um, you know, in, in, in programs and policies that, that fight food insecurity and support family farms. Um, can you give us an example of some of these initiatives and the impact that they've had? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think that probably the most famous one from Brazil is the the zero hunger um, policy, which really um, came out of you know social movements that were looking at issues of poverty and hunger, um, and became this very robust, far-reaching anti-poverty program. Um, one of the interesting things it did, for example, um, is to link these you know, family farmers with institutions, um, state institutions that then get the food to people who need it. So one of the best examples is the Brazil School Lunch Program, um, which, you know, specifies that um, 30% of all federal school lunch funds have to go to food that's, that's grown by family farmers. Wow. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, so that's been huge for these farmers because it's a good market. You know, it's a market that's not going anywhere. Um and then, um, yeah, and then also, you know, another interesting thing about that, that school lunch program is that 70% of the food that the, that the kids eat um, has to be natural or minimally processed ingredients. So it really means that they are, you know, both supporting farmers but also making sure that, that kids are really nourished and, um, and the program's designed so that these kids get, you know, a pretty significant portion of the calories they may need in a day at school. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, I'm just like I'm just still kind of trying to wrap my head around the um, the, the those are pretty incredible um, commitments that the government has made. Um, in a similar vein, what I mean in terms of like the focus on sustainable farmers, um, how have these initiatives kind of further emphasized the cultural embrace of sustainable farming? Well, I think that they have. Um, I think that they have sort of underscored the important role that these um, that these farms play in their kind of local community um, and just in the rural sort of economy. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. Um, and then there's definitely a preference for um, food that is organic or comes from agroecological methods. Um, and like some, for example, Sao Paulo's school feeding program, um, which, you know, uses federal money, but then also a lot of other money, you know, that comes from the city. Um, they just signed a big agreement to, to buy all organic rice from wow. family farmers. So, so yeah, it really can sort of push, you know, I think that there is a real preference for, you know, sustainably produced goods. So it can kind of create, help keep like, pushing that market. Right. Okay, um, we're going to take a really quick commercial break, but um, when we come back, we will uh, dig into some of the more specific policies that Brazil has implemented to promote healthy, sustainable eating and what lessons we can uh, bring back to the United States. Stay tuned. 
music for this commercial break is brought to you by Teeth People, and this track is called French Entrance. Today's program is brought to you by Origins, a speaker series. Origins aims to elevate the conversation about food, its origins, and what we are doing with food and food systems on this planet. The focus for this series is the food of the Mid-Atlantic region, centered around Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay watershed. The series is held within the intimate confines of Artifact Coffee, one of the restaurants owned by Spike and Amy Jardy and their partner Corey Poloka. Spike Jardy recently received the 2015 James Beard Foundation Award for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic, becoming the first chef from Baltimore to ever win an award from the foundation. Artifact is located at 1500 Union Avenue in Baltimore. Their restaurants also include Woodbury Kitchen and Parts and Labor, all of which are deeply and unwaveringly committed to the relationships they have with the growers, watermen, and producers of the Chesapeake region. We are here to create a community dialogue about local and responsible food systems, the economic impact of doing so, and how we grow, fish, cultivate, and work with local ingredients in our day-to-day lives. The panels feature growers and producers from the Chesapeake region. For more information and to listen to the series, visit heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with journalist Bridget Huber about her recent piece in The Nation and how Brazil became a global leader in the fight against obesity. Bridget, I know we sort of uh, touched on this before about uh, Brazil's school lunch policy, but we just sort of wanted to talk about it a little bit more in detail. Can you, um, you know, it's been, the school lunch policy has been touted as an example for the world. Can you explain what makes it such a gold standard? Yeah, absolutely. So, um... I think that one of the the big things is yeah this kind of articulation between the you know the school nutrition policy and and farm policy so kind of you know trying to accomplish these two goods at the same time so mm-hmm. supporting family farmers feeding people good food um, so that has gotten a lot of praise and then um, this emphasis on fresh and minimally processed ingredients means that you know what. What kids are eating in school is real food. You know, I saw uh, the, the the school lunch workers that I spoke with. You know, were chopping fresh herbs. They were cooking beans and rice from scratch. Wow. They were cooking these really nice meals. Yeah, um, and you know, about thirty percent of all the ingredients that they buy using federal money has to come from family farms. So they were getting a lot of it from from family farming. Um, so there's that piece of it, just that the food is, you know, very wholesome. Um, and and then there are other dimensions of it that really try to, um, you know, sort of establish social norms around eating. Um, so, you know, eating together, eating in sort of a calm, family-like environment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a component of culinary education, so teaching kids to cook and also just to appreciate healthy food. And is there an element of uh, universal school lunch? Did I did I read that in in the article? That yes, yes, exactly. That's so amazing. every Brazilian kid is public school student is um, guaranteed at least one meal, 
Um, many of them get more. I will say, however, that, you know, it's, it's uneven if you look at schools across the country, sort of some students are still not getting, you know, great-looking meals. Um, some schools are not using, you know, as many ingredients from family farmers as they ought to be under the law, but, you know, but, but yes, um, the idea is that it's universal school lunch regardless of family income. I mean, this, this program sounds absolutely incredible, um, but I'm wondering, given the current sort of infrastructural training budget, of course, political realities in the U.S., many of these, um, the cornerstone of, this, of these programs would seem impossible to implement in the U.S. Do you agree with that or, you know, agree, disagree? If, if we tried to do something similar, where would we even start in the United yeah. States? <laughs> I mean, I know it's it's a big question, especially since so many schools have you don't have the facilities to actually do a lot of real cooking anymore. Yeah. And you're right, people, you know, lose skills when we don't use them. And, you know, kids lose a taste for healthy food. And so I, I think that there are definitely challenges. Um, but on the other hand, I think that sort of one of those things that makes common sense, you know. And mm-hmm. so it seems to me like you could probably build a lot of um, – support from different sort of parts of society around this idea of, you know, feeding kids good, healthy, wholesome food, especially if it supported sustainable agriculture. Right. I, I mean, I, com- I completely agree. I would, <laughs> I just, um, given the complexities of our school food system, uh, sometimes wonder how any improvements can <laughs> yeah. get made. Um, one, right. of, <laughs> one of the things I was most interested in learning, and um, it's something that I don't think is discussed enough when we talk about nutrition and food in this country, uh, is Brazil's incorporation of pleasure in their 2014 dietary guidelines. So the joys of eating. Um, can you tell us uh, more about what these guidelines look like and how they're incorporated? Right, yeah, and I think that that is precisely one of the things that, you know, people outside of Brazil connected with the most was this sort of looking at food not as, you know, this source of stress, um, not as, you know, this source of worry, am I eating too many grams of fat or sugar, but looking at it as a pleasure. Right. Um, I think that was really yeah, something that a lot of people would like to see more of in, you know, our own dietary guidelines and our own approach to food. So um, so pleasure was really um, a part of it, and pleasure was, is important in terms of sort of the, the social pleasure that comes um, from, you know, sitting down with family or preparing food with family um, and friends. Um, so, you know, they talk about not eating alone. They talk about... Um, cooking and eating meals not as a burden but as a privileged time of pleasure um and i think another way that that showed itself is that the guidelines um give sample meals kind of based on what brazilians who still eat you know relatively healthy diets eat Mm -hmm. that they drew from national dietary data so the other sort of piece of that is that it's you know, eating healthy does not mean eating a bunch of um, diet foods or foods that, you know, you have to buy at a health food store that you mm-hmm. may not enjoy. Um, they really say, you know, eat meals prepared from real foods and, you know, you're, you're probably pretty good, you know? So, right. So it's also kind of this nice, like, low-key approach. Like, you're doing pretty well. Let's build on the strengths. You know, you don't have to overhaul your entire diet. You can still eat what you like. Right. You know? 
Mm-hmm. How has the recent political turmoil in Brazil with President Dilma Rousseff's suspension affected, and you know, the progress that Brazil has made um, in in these you know policies and also just their general fight against food insecurity? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think everyone's sort of watching and waiting to see. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, what's going to happen, obviously, with President Rousseff, her fate is not sealed, and then um, just not that much time has gone by. But um, in general, of course, you know, any economic crisis hits the poor harder than everyone else, which makes it hard for them to afford, you know, everything, including healthy foods. Um, So that's, you know, even though the school feeding program would cushion that some, I mean, that's a big concern. Um, And then if you look at some of the moves that the interim president, Temer, has made, you know, one of the things he did was he appointed as the agriculture secretary, um, this soy baron who, you know, he wants to loosen the rules around what legally constitutes slavery and kind of modern day slavery is wow. a big problem in the far, in the agribusiness sector. So that yeah. was a big red flag. And then, uh, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. to say the least. And he yeah. eliminated a ministry that deals specifically <clears throat> with family farmers and with agrarian yeah. reform. So that was worrisome. I mean, the duties have been absorbed by other ministries, but I think that that people I spoke with felt like that was, you know, really a message around, you know, not taking this sector seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and then the other piece of it I think that is interesting is that um, Brazilian law um, requires a lot of public participation in um, a lot of different policymaking, but one of those areas is food and nutrition, and there's this big... Um, influential National Food Security Council that's made up of a bunch of different kind of organizations and then some governmental representatives. And they've actually said that if um, Temer takes the presidency, that they're going to resign. Wow. Um, yeah, and they've really played a pretty instrumental role in helping to shape food policy and support policy when, you know, it's come under attack from industry. So for those civilians, you know, the, the non-governmental members of that um Council to resign would be a pretty, you know, would have a pretty big effect in how this policy making goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are, are there um, progressive programs and policies um, that, you know, are indicative of a broader movement across Latin America, or is it really that Brazil is sort of the leader on this front? No, I wouldn't say Brazil is really, you know, that much out ahead. I mean, they've done some interesting things, but in other ways, they haven't accomplished as much. There is a broad movement um, in Latin America, you know. Chile, for example, is um, really reigning in junk food advertising, especially to kids. Mm. They're they're rolling out new labels for junk food. They're rolling out a soda tax. Mexico has a tax on soda and other junk foods. Um, Peru has cracked down on food advertising and done a lot around kind of... um, promoting, you know, the traditional diet. Um, and then a lot of these countries have done school lunch reform. And, you know, if you read some of the, um, the materials coming out from the Pan American Health Organization, which is um, an arm of the WHO, which actually covers all the Americas but seems to have more influence in Latin America, you know, it's pretty progressive, um, a lot of the food policy that's being tried out there. Um, if they're okay, so we're gonna have to um, wrap it up. Um, but I just have one more question. I would say, if you have any kind of advice for American consumers who would like some of these progressive reforms to happen in the United States, what would be a way that um, you know our listeners can kind of go about helping to make that happen? I think that what I took from the Brazilian um, example was 
building these sort of these movements um, among people who have different food sort of food adjacent agendas. So people are into farming, people are into nutrition, people are into slow food, like, you know, school lunch, like kind of trying to work together to come up with a rational sort of strategy and approach to food policy. I think that that would be an interesting way to try to move forward. Okay, great. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for um, coming on the line today. It was great to speak with you. It was my pleasure. All right. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have our startup segment of the week. Music for this break is brought to you by Teeth People. And this track is called Poetry is Dead. Well, she's her own. She's her own female. She's her own female. That's why I like her. I like her a lot. And she don't know that she's her own female. She's her own female. And she don't know. That's why I like her a lot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It is obviously time for the startup of the week, uh, where we feature an innovative new startup doing um, exciting things in the food movement. Today, I am very pleased to introduce David Foster, co-founder of Every Table, an L.A.-based restaurant chain on a mission to make good food available to everyone. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Thanks for coming on. So can you, um, let's just start by telling me a little bit about Every Table and how the model works. Sure. So Every Table is a social enterprise that's working to make healthy, delicious food available for everyone. So the way it works is we have a central kitchen that produces grab-and-go, delicious, healthy meals that we then distribute through really small storefronts uh, over time throughout Los Angeles and then throughout the country. So right now, we just opened up our first store about 10 days ago in South LA, which is a little bit south of downtown Los Angeles, and we offer meals there for four bucks. And the way the model is going to work is that we'll have stores priced based on the neighborhood. So in South LA, where per capita income is 13000 a year, meals are $4 on average, like I said, and then we'll be opening up our second location downtown where, where meals will be uh, priced on average between 7 and 8 bucks. Uh, so, David, why, uh, how did you come to launch this company? Sure. So uh, my co-founder is a guy named Sam Polk, and about three years ago, he started a nonprofit organization called Grocery Ships, and Grocery Ships works on the same issue of food inequality and food-related health issues here in L.A., uh, but it does it in a little bit of a different way. It's nutrition education. Uh, we bring in fresh produce to families, have healthy cooking classes, and wrap around that a support group model um, to help the families that are going through this same issue, which is trying 
trying to get healthy amidst a relatively unhealthy environment. And, and from that work that, that Sam started, uh, I actually joined the team there at Grocery Ships a couple of years ago, and we started to hear that in addition to that work with, with Grocery Ships, it'd be really great if there was some option that was healthy, fast food that wasn't really bad for you too. So in South LA, you know, it's, it's what's often called a food desert where there aren't a lot of healthy on-the-go options. So we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with a model that could deliver on the same price point that customers are, are typical, typically seeing at McDonald's, for example, but it's really healthy, nutritious food that's going to be good for the wallet and good for their bodies too. So there are um, a lot of different kind of mission-driven models in the startup space that I have um learned about. Um, for example, you, you know, there are companies doing like a one-for-one -one model. You can donate a, or donate a portion of your proceeds um, to specific charities or, or causes. How did you come up with the idea to charge different prices at different locations? Um, and second part of the question, um, did you ever consider like a food truck as opposed to in these locations as opposed to uh, the expense of a brick and mortar? Yeah, uh, I'll answer the first part or the, or the second part first. But yeah, we've definitely considered a, a food truck model, and that's something that yeah, I, I could see us rolling out down the road. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was important to us, at least for the first handful of stores, to have a physical location that's fixed that customers can really depend on being there day in and day out, so that they can really build it into their daily routine and know that anytime they want a, a healthy, quick meal on the go, that they can come by every table and, and pick one up. Um, and to answer the first part of your question, you know, we, we sort of looked at the existing players in the healthy, fast, casual space, and you know, what we realized is that, you know, a lot of them are, are great companies with great products, and most of them are charging prices that for a family in South L.A. just isn't accessible. Um, and, and the, you know, the underpinnings for every table is all about making the same great, healthy, delicious meals available to people across the, the economic spectrum. So we wanted it to be a model that it wasn't one for one, that was a model about everyone playing a part and, and voting with their wallets, but also took into consideration the economic realities, which are that people you know, across the country and, and across the city in somewhere like L.A. have very different realities of what they can afford. And, and for someone that's making only $13,000 per year, the difference between $3.95 and, and $6.95 for a meal is a stark difference. Um, so we wanted to make it so that it's relatively attractive in any market, but that we priced it differently based on those realities of each local market. Um, I have to ask, uh, I you know, I'm, I'm putting on my, um, my food insecurity hat right now. Um, and you know, the reality is that SNAP recipients only have $4 a day in benefits to spend on food, right? Um, and that's pretty much the, the cost of your average meal at one of your locations in a high-needs area. How does this reality affect the way you market the business? You, you know, it's, it's a good question, um, and I, I don't know that it actually does affect how, how we market the business. What we've tried to, to accomplish is delivering on a price point that right now is about as low as we can get it while still being sustainable, and, and by that I mean profitable in each store. So four bucks.
box is, is about the low point that we can go right now right, and right. still break even in those locations. So, uh, you know, we totally agree with you that, that, you know, we wish that we could get lower and we also wish that, you know, the SNAP benefits were a little bit higher. Right, yeah. Um, but, but for now, you know, we take some solace in the fact that we're charging a price that's below what you're, you're accustomed to seeing at fast food restaurants. And, you know, there, there are ways to, you know, pay less if you cook at home for some meals, but we wanted to be as competitive as possible with other existing players out there mm -hmm. and also take into consideration the financial realities of, of operating a business and having something that's scalable. Yeah. So another thing I'm thinking about is stigma is something that food access advocates are constantly battling with. Can you talk about how um, your team plans on addressing this um, either in stores, uh, you know, that are located in higher poverty areas? Yeah. So, you know, the, the model for every table is, is really about inclusivity and, and celebrating diversity. So in, in L.A., Obviously, this is one of the most diverse cities in, in, in the country, and we've taken that into consideration when designing the stores themselves and having vibrant colors and, at the same time, warm lighting and an invi inviting environment, and also with the menu development where we have, you know, Asian and Latin and traditional Californian dishes. So we, we've tried to create a in-store experience that is accessible for anyone, anywhere, and also a, a menu that is broadly appealing that also has a dish or two that's familiar to, to people across the map. Um, and as far as you know, the, the kids go, we've got great kids' meals that we offer for $2.95 that are, are more familiar, you know, spaghetti and meatballs with spaghetti squash instead of noodles and, you know, turkey and quinoa meatballs instead of a, a traditional pork or beef meatball. So we've got stuff that we think is going to be approachable and familiar that also skews to the healthy side of the equation um, and, again, really takes uh, affordability into consideration with everything. Right. I you, you almost lost me when you said kids' menu. And then you said spaghetti squash is in a place of noodles. And I was like, okay, I'm back. <laughs> I'm back on board. Yeah, it's been a real hit. We've got that. We've also got this kid's picnic dish that's, that's pretty simple, but it's got corn on the cob and sweet potato puree and, and a little uh, chicken drumstick that people love, too. Um, well, it sounds delicious. Um, I think we've got time for one or two quick more questions, but I, I want to know, um, are your, what are your expansion plans? Are, are you, or is it going to be like a, a California thing or, um, are you, is the goal to, to go broader? For the foreseeable future, the, the goal is really to focus here on Los Angeles. The plan for the rest of the year is to open our second location downtown, which will be 7th and Flower at a development called The Block. That will be opening up in November. And on top of that, we hope to add another two locations by the end of the year or real early in 2017. And then through 2017, we hope to have, by the end of the year, 10-plus locations open, again, focused on Los Angeles. And, and the plan is to really you know, work this market here and make sure that we're fulfilling the demand in L.A. where there is a ton of demand before we look to other markets. And the way the model really works is by having that critical mass locally where we're producing big batches in our central kitchen and driving those cost efficiencies that we can then pass on the customers. So before we uh, really start thinking about expanding you know, regionally or nationally, we want to make sure that everything's working well in L.A. 
but longer term, uh, the goal really is to have an every table in every community across the country that has need and to, to grow pretty rapidly over time. Um, well, that is that is really exciting. And I think that I speak for a number of people in the uh, food you know, community who is really uh, excited to see where this goes. I think there have been a lot of people who have been trying to kind of figure out how to do well by doing good. And um, this model seems really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. So thank you uh, so much for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me, and we really appreciate the support. Thanks absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, and with that, we're going to wrap up the show for today. I want to thank both of our guests so very much for coming on, Bridget Huber and David Foster. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from Taylor Lenzet, and uh, show music is by the fabulous Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienamy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on itunes and stitcher be sure to subscribe like share follow and post to us on facebook and find us on twitter at eat matters hrn i'm jenna Liu, and thank you for listening Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.